Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Joel Bryce, and welcome to another episode of Delta Waterfowl's The Voice of the Duck Hunter podcast. As hunters, we all rely on trained wildlife professionals to make sound decisions when it comes to structuring hunting seasons, bag limits, and overall population management. In turn, biologists routinely rely on hunters to voluntarily provide personal and accurate information in terms of hunting activity and success in the field. On today's episode, we talk harvest surveys, in particular, the Migratory Bird Harvest Information Program, or HIP, as it's most commonly referred to. We discuss the purpose of HIP and why it's important that migratory bird hunters participate in this program each and every year. To help discuss the ins and out of HIP, I'm joined by Brad Bortner from the Wildlife Management Institute. Hello, Brad. Howdy, Joel. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. So for those uh, who are actually are listening to this podcast, Brad and I are both up on the screen, so I just brought him in here so the world can see. So again, I, as I, I say often, you are officially on record as being on the podcast. I'll, I'll look for my, uh, my podcast t-shirt in the mail. I'll have to develop one and get it to you right away. <laughs> hey, tell us real quick there, this uh, background for those that are, are watching. I see what looks like Brant in the background. They're Brant decoys um, floating out on the Pacific uh, and I have a kind of a historic uh, uh, Brant rig, a hand carved Brant rig that I've accumulated over um, the years from various Brant, older Brant hunters who are getting out of the business and, and it includes one hand carved one from a guy by the name of Chris Nikolai, who you might know. Yeah, we um, might know so. him. Yep. He might be just down the hallway here at the yeah. end. So that's pretty great. So Brad, um, I want tradition here i want everybody to get to understand who you are why did i bring on brad who is he so brad bortner give us the you know give us a, a background and feel free to start where you're from we're all from somewhere go through your you know professional career and what what lands you in this capacity today well i like to tell people uh, when they ask me where i'm from um i'm kind of from a johnny cash song i've been everywhere man um i am um, my father was career navy and so I've lived all over the United States and abroad, um, um, everything from New England to Florida to uh, California to, to out in the middle of the Pacific on, at Guam and, um, and then back to Maryland. And I spent uh, my high school years in Maryland on the Chesapeake Bay uh, in, out of Annapolis. And uh, that's where I de uh, developed my love for waterfowl and, and uh, being out in the marsh uh, on the Chesapeake. So grew up there, um, went off to college, uh, got a degree in, in wildlife uh, biology from the University of Vermont. While I was doing that, I picked up a forestry uh, bachelor's degree also. And um, at the end of my, um, uh, of my first senior year, my major advisor said, you know, you like waterfowl. You need to go to this place up in Manitoba called Delta Waterfowl Research Station. And 1980, I went up there and there was a guy I met pretty pretty much the first day his name was Frank Rohr he was a graduate student working on um working on his uh, PhD and and spent some time with Frank uh and he had a technician by the name of Jonathan Scarth uh, another uh icon in, in the Delta world and I got pretty friendly with a uh, a female graduate student up there and I married her um so um I went on to uh, to study uh, uh, whistling swans or tundra swans, as it's called now, and 
And when I was finishing up my master's, um, I got offered a chance for a PhD or a, a chance to join the federal government. And I went and became um, a migratory bird biologist for the federal government. And I worked three years as the Woodcock Specialist for the Office of Migratory Bird Management. And then in, um, took a couple promotions. And then in 92, I ended up uh, transferring out to Portland, Oregon as the Chief of Migratory Birds for the Pacific region. And I worked in all the migratory bird issues from California to Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Nevada, and the Pacific Islands. And I did that for 19 years. Um, in all sorts of different uh, activities from disease control to population management to habitat management and developing partnerships. Um, and then in 2011, uh, we had a vacancy in Washington, D.C. and I went into Washington, D.C. He was the National Chief of Migratory Bird Management. And I did that for six years and retired at the end of uh, 2017. And so that's pretty much my professional career. I'm retired now and spend most of my time with a shotgun in my hand, either chasing waterfowl or upland birds. Um, but a couple of years ago, um, Wildlife Management Institute asked me to um, uh, if I'd be interested in picking up a project for them on, on the Harvest Information Program. And since I was involved in the formation of the Harvest Information Program 25, 30 years ago, I thought, um, it was something that would be um, uh, fun to do in retirement because I'm passionate about um, uh, the data used for certain migratory bird hunting regulations. That is impressive. So, I mean, I kind of want to state the obvious here. We, we have folks, we have the expert, you know, on this podcast when it comes to at least migratory bird uh, surveys, when it comes to hunter participation, Brad, I, I, you know the importance of of hunter surveys, right? I, I, would you have been able to do your job without a good survey system, without a good methodology out there? No, actually, uh, like I said, that's how we got how I got um, involved in in what has become HIP is when I was the woodcock specialist back in the eighties. I was trying to manage uh, woodcock populations, and we had a little bit of banding information. We had what's called the singing ground survey, which gives us an index to the breeding population, but we had um, limited information on harvest and, and how many woodcock hunters there, uh, there are. And when I started talking to folks about managing other non-waterfowl migratory birds, um, we realized very quickly that our data sets are very limited. And um, we really needed better information um, uh, so we could set the appropriate regulations. And, and um, at that point in time, we were um, uh, facing a lot of scrutiny uh, about hunting regulations in general um, and, you know, and proving up our data sets um, and being able to show uh, the courts and everything else what, our, uh, what data we were using for management was vital for continuation. Of, of this activity that we so much enjoy, you know, migratory bird hunting. It, it's, you know, as, as trained wildlife professionals, you know, when we go through college, you know, we're taught about surveys, we're taught about um, um, estimating populations or censusing with some sorts of, uh, some types of species, but, you know, with the complexity of migratory birds, the fact that they go into the far reaches 
of uh, northern reaches of, of North America, and then some of these species end up into you know Central and South America. It's it's impossible for us as managers to census migratory birds, get an absolute count, get an absolute um, cause effect measurement of of what's going on. And so it, it's you know in the introduction I said it's you know as hunters we rely on trained wildlife professionals to to manage these populations and. I would say that, it, at least in the case of migratory birds, the, they lean heavily on the hunter as well. Is that a fair statement? Oh yeah, the, the hunters, the hunter, and the information that they provide is um, is can't be overstated. Uh, the importance of of the information that we get from hunters, whether it's returns or bans, or participation in har- harvest surveys, all of that is critical for our um, our management of migratory birds and. You just have to walk down the hall and talk to Chris Nikolai and talk about, um, you know, uh, Lincoln Peters, Lincoln Peterson estimates and, and how important the harvest estimate is for coming up with uh, a population estimate for those species that we can't count any other way. Um, and that's why having good, valid, precise um, harvest information is so important, especially for the non-waterfowl species. Right. So let's. I think as an intro to HIP, let's start with an experiment, an experience that every migratory bird hunter should be having, right? And we'll start with the should be having. So just last month, I purchased my hunting license through the North Dakota Game and Fish you know, online platform. They asked me the question, do you plan to hunt ducks, doves, ducks, geese, snipe, woodcock, crane, swan, or coots? in the upcoming year? I answered yes. And so that populated a whole list of questions. Now, this is a requirement, right, Brad, to register to complete this survey process. This is a requirement. It is, it is, a, it is a requirement. The, the backstory on HIP is, is it's a state federal partnership. Um, and, uh, you know, we were looking for information on managing migratory uh, game birds. And, and we all came to the realization that we needed something. And the state, you know, the states have the purview of collecting names and addresses and, and everything else. So they wanted to be the front end of what is now called HIP, asking you those questions, getting your name and address. And then they turn that information over to the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service conducts the harvest surveys subsequent to that. But in order to make sure that it's uniform and across everything else, it actually was made a federal requirement. So every migratory bird hunter is required to get a HIP certification in every state that they hunt. So that's, I guess there's two things there. One, if you're out migratory bird hunting and you're checked by a law enforcement officer, you need to have a HIP number recorded with your license. Correct. That's the legal requirement. Okay. So I guess the other aspect, now that's the legal requirement. So again, there were a few more questions. Like um, I'll just I'm I'm looking at one right now. So it was I I was asked questions based on ducks, geese, doves, coots, or snipe, and light geese. Well, the light geese maybe it's a different situation there, but with ducks, the options were did not hunt ducks last season, hunted ducks but did not bag any, harvested one to ten, or harvested eleven or more. Now there's a couple other surveys that that you'll talk about that, that come as a result of this, but the, the legal requirement ends here. Is that right? And the others that's, that's are voluntary. So yes. we can regulate this aspect of it 
but not the rest. So, well, yeah, regulate regulate is a is a strong term, and in, in that um, we're hoping, and what I'm hoping to do today is to explain to hunters why it's important for them to participate, and you know, and realize that it's that it's in their best interest in uh, for setting appropriate hunting regulations and providing hunting opportunity to to um, to participate, want to participate in these survey in the survey. Those questions that you're asking are not the survey. They're um, those are uh, questions that we that the Fish and Wildlife Service, the states and the Fish and Wildlife Service uses um, to, and I don't want to get too deep into statistical terminology, but to group hunters who are alike um, into into different pots so they can be sampled uh, to to come up with an accurate and precise measure of their activity and how successful they are. Okay. So the other one, so there's three surveys that, that I see. So there's HIP, and I call it the survey because you're asked a series of questions as you're buying your license. But then there's the, the, the hunter survey or the diary survey, and then there's the parts collection survey or right. emitting wings. I want to back up a step there. So if you buy a federal duct stamp, that's good in all 50 states. But your HIP registration must be completed in each of the states, right? That's correct. So if, you, yep. if you're from Washington state and you drive down to California to hunt, you have two HIP registrations, right? I do. And in a report on, I answer those questions relative to my activity in that state the previous year. Um, but the, and I think we would all agree that if we had a single federal um, harvest survey, um, you know, HIP registration, it would be cleaner and you'd only have to get it once. But as I said, it's, it's the states, the states are the experts um, in collecting um, uh, name and address information. And, and they have the, the responsibility of the purview of, of licensing hunters on a statewide basis. So we made the decision years ago that instead of having this as a federal um, uh, survey, or a federal, you know, entry into the survey, there would be a states, and and it really truly is a state federal partnership. States collect the names and addresses and the answers to those questions, and then turn it over to the Fish and Wildlife Service. Fish and Wildlife Service does, as you said, the mail uh, the mail questionnaire survey, and then for the various species, the parts collection survey, compiles the information and shares that back out with. Um, with the flyways and the flyways and the Fish and Wildlife Service use that to develop regulatory proposals and harvest strategies. Okay, so I'm going to keep bouncing back out to um, me, the duck hunter. Mm -hmm. So I've registered for HIP. I understand that you know the information that that I produced through that through that initial questionnaire is used. Perhaps I'll be one of the hunters selected for, you know, the diary survey, or perhaps I'll be one of them selected for the parts collection survey. But if I'm not, that what if I'm just you just have the information from that entry level questionnaire? I have my hip number. What what is generated from that? What's the value of that information in and of itself? Well, that information, um, you know, one uh, goes in and we and in the states and the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, know the universe of migratory bird hunters. So, so um, you know, you're, Joel, you're involved with our three efforts and everything else. So here's a, here is a, a way that we can identify 
um, you know, different communities within the R3 uh, world um, and, and start developing management programs to, to reactivate, to, um, you know, renew and, and all the other aspects of uh, R3, you know, so we know how avid they are and who we're at and, and who we're gaining and who we're losing. So you can think of all kinds of uh, ancillary um, uses for that information, but for right now, it's just it, the, the HIP is focused on collecting names and addresses and those answers to develop the sampling frame. And then if you think about those questions, it, uh, those questions um, are the hunters telling us how successful they were and how basically how avid they were and they go in, those answers go into little buckets and it's called a stratified random sample and you go in and you sample within those things and so we're of all the hunters that are reporting that they shoot 30 or more ducks a year we can sample at a rate and get a precise estimate on, on that versus the ones that are less successful and less avid and it it adds to coming up with a precise survey, but also an efficient survey. Um, if you think about trying to find who are the rail hunters in, in the United States, if you didn't have that sort of sample, you would be sending out thousands and thousands and thousands of, of, uh, of questionnaires to people who would say, I've never shot a rail in my life, never seen a rail, don't know what a rail is. Uh, why are you asking me these questions? And, and you can imagine that, you know, from a statistical standpoint, your um, the precision of that your estimate, um, you know, would be plus or minus a thousand percent, and um, and so in order to be much more efficient and much more precise, we need to stratify the hunters into into those groups. Okay, so so through the HIP registration process, you can end up with a with a count or an index of how many hunters are out there in a given year. I think it's important to point out, you know, at this moment right here where that entry survey takes place, I, I do think that there's a subset of hunters out there that I don't, I don't know if it's a law enforcement concern, but there's a level of distrust here. And so mm -hmm. I, I'm, I, I hear at times that a particular hunter might be shy about, you know, if they shot 50 ducks, they might be shy about, you know, selecting the highest harvest level, you know, for concern of that, you know, I don't know if that makes them a target for law enforcement. I, I'm just being the conspiracy theorist. So I just want to, at this moment in time, other than did you register for HIP or did you not, there are zero legal ramifications or spinoffs of this program. That's, that's correct. The, the answer to the question, you know, is purely to put you and the other hunters who are, um, are, that active or that successful into the same um, into the same sampling bucket, and um, and there is no legal ramifications if they you know you, your name is not going on some special list uh, for law enforcement to come check your freezer if you you know indicate that you hunt uh, and kill more than thirty ducks a year. Um, you know those are conspiracy theories. I've heard them all before in the past. Um, they're they're not accurate. Um, and those questions, the answers to those questions also are not the survey. You know, I hear that one also a, a lot too is, well, if I put down zero, uh, they're going to think that we're less successful. Therefore we're going to have more liberal seasons. It doesn't work that way. Um, and, um, that's why I think it's important to hunters understand the survey, understand why their, their participation is important and their truthful, 
honest answers are, are important um, for getting good estimates, but also it feeds directly into the harvest management strategies. If you're a morning dove hunter, if you're a, um, a pin you know, pintail shooter, um, those harvest estimates feed directly into the models that, um, uh, and the harvest strategies for those species. And so if you have imprecise um, information in migratory bird management, what happens is, is the regulations end up being more conservative instead of more liberal because you know, the, uh, the, of the risk tolerance of the agencies. So in short, if you're falsifying information or you're not providing uh, accurate information, if you're misleading through, through any of the surveys that we're going to talk about, you're hurting yourself as a hunter. Garbage in, garbage out. You know, quality information in, a quality product in return. So, you know, if, if Brad and I do our job today, when, when, you, when, when the listener goes out and buys their hunting license for the year and they say yes, please say yes if you're going to hunt migratory birds, you know, say yes. And then truly answer, you know, the categorical questions. And if you are selected for any of the resulting surveys, take part. Keep a good diary. Collect all of your wings. So I, let's move on from there. Anything more you wanted to say about the entry point, Brad, or is this a couple? Well, I just want I just want folks to to realize your listeners to realize that um, you know they're a critical uh, component of uh, migratory bird management, and. Uh, we don't have these surveys in here for um, for any other reason except we want to provide um, hunting opportunity and, and that the regulations are appropriate. And uh, as you said, you know it's in the hunter's best interest to participate um, as as best uh, they can. And um, you know if they've got questions, come to the management professionals and we'll try to answer those. Um, uh, you know if they've got concerns, um, we can try to alleviate those concerns, but. Um, you know, going around and, uh, as you said, and spreading the urban urban rumors about what, what the information is used for or how it's going to, you know, bite you in the butt. Um, you know, most of that's just, um, you know, somebody somebody doesn't have enough of, you know, uh, understanding of the, of the system and, you know, jumping to conclusions. So be excited if you're selected. One of the ladies in our office, she was selected for jury duty. And the night before, she's the only one I've ever heard say that. She goes, I hope I, I hope I get to go tomorrow. I've always wanted to do that. So hopefully, if you're selected through any of these surveys, you go, great. I've, I've hoped, I hoped it came my way. I'm giddy to be a part of it. So, okay. So basically, hip number, now, you, now you're able to stratify your sample. And so now a hunter might be selected for either the diary survey or the parts collection survey. We'll talk about each one of those. Let me ask you, Brad, can you be selected for both? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you can be. Um, typically, typically, you're not selected for the, um, for the parts collection survey unless you've, um, uh, unless you've agreed to participate in the mail questionnaire survey. So one year you get the re request to keep the diary. And uh, if you do that and um, uh, the next year you have an opportunity to, you'll probably, you may have the opportunity to participate in the, in the parts collection survey. Okay. Um, uh, typically they don't um, send out the parts collection survey on a random basis, um, but they do sometimes uh, if they don't have enough participants from a single state. Okay. So let's look at the migratory bird hunter survey. I, I you heard me call them diary surveys, just mm -hmm. kind of descriptive of what you're doing. Can you describe 
what that one is. So if you're selected, what does it look like? And then what's the purpose of that aspect? Um, it, the diary survey basically asks you um, the date uh, that you went hunting, hunting um, you know, the, the county in the state, and how many, how many uh, ducks and geese, um, in the case of waterfowl, that you harvested. Um, and it just, you keep a record for every day of the, of the season. And, um, and what that allows the Fish and Wildlife Service to do is, is get an idea of hunter activity, uh, how, how much you're getting out. Um, again, these are all, these are all s s um, sampling um, efforts. They're, they're surveys. They're not a complete census where we're not trying to touch base with every single hunter out there. Uh, just a sample of them, and from that, it draw conclusions about uh, about the uh, about all hunters. You know, it'd be very difficult to to um, encounter or to survey every hunter and, and get a complete census of their activity. And everything else is not necessary either. Right. It's been, a while. it's been a while since I was selected for a diary survey. I, I don't recall, so it's a genuine question. Do you list? Does a hunter? attempt to break down or break out species or it's just i harvest no. this many ducks this many geese or nothing right that's correct okay it's it not not species the species composition of the harvest along with age and sex is, is determined from um the wing the parts collection survey okay so there's a so through the diary survey you come up with a with a predicted harvest like Duck hunters, goose hunters harvested this many ducks and geese this year, mm. but you don't know the species. So now, again, you just kind of set it up here. Now we flip over into the parts collection survey. And there you get a bunch of big yellow envelopes, as I recall, you know, to, to for each, each one of the ducks you harvest or geese you harvest, you cut off a wing, stick it in the bag and periodically mail them in, right? That's correct. Uh, the geese you, you send in the the... The, the tail feathers and the ducks and brant you send in a wing got it and the brant why did, why the brant wing and and not the tail feathers um because uh, because you can't tell um uh, a brant from a from a uh, a goose by looking at the tail feathers basically but you know um i don't want to go too far down into the weeds of biology and just but just talk about the general mechanisms but yeah brant you sent you submit a wing also and that was can, a leading that was a leading question i was leading you brad but that i think that's the part so i think that's the number one question that people have or they ask themselves if i send you a wing or if i send you tail feathers you can really really tell what species it is what sex it is and how old it is and the answer yeah. to that is I'll, yeah i'll send you some links um to fish and wildlife service web pages that have um um uh, Paul Padding um, explaining uh, how to age and sex duck wings and show you some examples and uh, the background Fish and Wildlife Service uh, of uh, information about the harvest survey program and how we go about doing all of that. If people want to take a deep dive into um, how that is actually done, but yeah, and there's also a link to a book that was done by Sam Carney years ago uh, um, with color pictures of duck wings uh, by species, and you can um, and you can determine not only age and um, but also sex. Uh, so you can tell a female gadwall, an adult female gadwall, from a, a juvenile female gadwall, or you know the 
the prototypical brown duck, uh, immature hen widgeon, um, and by looking at uh, the, the feather characteristics. And if you spend enough time doing this, you become an expert and you can sort out um, you know, the age and sex of, uh, of all, the duck, all the ducks that are harvested out there. You know, I, I remember in college, you know, the wildlife techniques 101 or 150 or whatever it was. I mean, all of the duck wings. And I come from a long line of waterfowl hunters. And so I, you know, I thought that I knew, you know, I, you know, the whole duck, I, I could get them all. But when it came down to the wing, holy cow, that was a, it is a skill. And I do think it's an overlooked skill without the ability of biologists to, to identify all those um, you know, what species, what sex, what age from, from the wing alone, this critical piece of information would be missing. So it's pretty incredible. So hunter selected, you know, we, at, you ask, or we ask, the community asks the hunter to submit the wing or the tail feather in terms of a goose, not named a brand. Where do they go? What's done with those? And then the, the golly gee whiz trivia, how many wings are submitted on a given year, Brad? Any idea, any estimate there? Yeah, um, uh, I, think they, I think they generally try to look at about 100,000 parts um, across all four flyways. Um, don't quote me on the exact number, um, but they, they have a, a minimum sample size that they try to, you know, this your question earlier about um, can you participate in both? Uh, they have a minimum sample size that they try to get in each flyway. Um, but all of those envelopes go to, um, uh, uh, to facilities that uh, receive that mail during the hunting season um, and immediately goes into freezers. And there are um, basically some technical folks um, at each of those stations that uh, start sorting those out saying, okay, these are, this is a mallard wing and, and puts all the mallard wings in, in one, uh, one area and, and they sort them out by species in the freezers. And then in February of every year in each of the four flyways, all the waterfowl biologists from um, the states and uh, from NGOs and from the federal government get together in what we call um, a wing bay. Kind of coming off the old sewing bee, um, you know, name, but get around and spend a week going through all of the wings and tail feathers that are submitted um, in that uh, for for the waterfowl world in, in that flyway. The, the same happens with um, morning doves and, and woodcock also. And so there are folks that go through all those wings, looks at each one, and makes a determination of what species it is, how old it was, and and whether it was a male or a female. So, so then now, as I think is the appropriate time to kind of marry or, the, or zip the two surveys together. The diary survey said how many ducks were harvested, period. Mm -hmm. You know, an estimate of how many uh, predicted harvest. Then you take the parts collection survey and say, okay, 25% of our wings were pintail. Is, then is it literally that? Then 25% predicted harvest. Yeah, without getting without getting into all the math and everything else. Yeah, literally that's basically how it comes. See, you come up with um, marrying them together, coming up with an estimate of how many species, how many of each species age and sex was harvested in, in each of the states, and, and it's compiled all the way up to the flyway level, and then up to the national level. Okay, so you could. Basically, now what you're left with at the end of that surveying season, you end you end up with a, an estimated harvest 
by species and I guess sex as well. But there's also that juvenile or adult, mm -hmm. meaning was it hatched that breed prior breeding season or it just becomes an adult. It could be seven years old. It's either an adult or it's sub one year. Yeah. So you, you do get an index of uh, productivity, how, how productive ducks were this past year. Um, you also can um, use that information for what's called um, assessing um, the differential vulnerability between adult birds and, and juvenile birds. We all know the juvenile birds decoy easier and that sort of thing. So you can start using that to correct your banding, um, your, your, you know, or using banding information to correct your differential vulnerabilities. So there's a lot of uses for that information. And then when, once they're finished with all the wings, um, there are folks that collect wings um, for museums, for training purposes at universities. You're talking about your ornithology class or your wildlife techniques class. Um, some of them go off to, um, to train uh, other biologists and law enforcement officers. And then other, one, other folks um, in university grad students collect them to look at genetic or um, you know, uh, chemical composition and everything from uh, looking at stable isotopes to, um, uh, to genetic, you know, looking at genetic population indicators. So lots of use for those parts. Um, it's a very valuable um, service that the hunters provide, um, very valuable information that the hunters provide to the waterfowl management community. Jeez, it's, it's amazing. So let's, let's go further down the funnel. We're not quite out the end of the funnel yet, but let's, let's jam down a little bit farther. So you have an estimate of total number of hunters. You have an estimate of total harvest broken down by species, sex, and age. What do you do with all that? Now, how does that turn into, where does that feed the overall harvest management regulating set, setting enterprise? Well, as, as I said, for, um, for um, a number of, um, of species, that information is used directly, in, feeds the model set that comes up with their regulations. Um, you know, in the past 25 years or so, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service working with the states have, have um, developed uh, regulatory packages that say, if we hit certain biological criteria, how many ponds, how many ducks, um, that sort of thing, um, this age ratio in the harvest, this is what the appropriate regulations is going to be. And so that is a data stream that, that um, in, depends on the species, that, um, uh, but it, it feeds directly into the management um, decision-making and also you know, um, and helps inform the, the strategies um, that trigger various, uh, regulations. Okay. Okay. How did, um, so, so again, if we, if we haven't shined the proper light on the importance of this survey and, and everyone participating willingly, voluntarily, you know, we haven't done our job. I do have to ask the question how, with all of this information and, and how critical it is, how did the government manage without HIP. So prior to 1999, what types of data did, were, were secured? Well, prior to 1999, um, the, um, the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, piggybacked on the duck stamp sales, um, and the requirement that every waterfowl hunter purchase a duck stamp, and they distributed postcards soliciting participation in the harvest survey for waterfowl uh, on, um, on duck stamp sales. 
with um, changes in in um, post offices not uh, not carrying duck stamps with um, not wanting to distribute the postcards, but a number of other things. Um, and, uh, that system was getting uh, getting weak, and um, uh, and with the realization that we had no source of information for the other webless migratory birds on harvest and, and hunter hunter numbers, um, uh, they were combined in, into uh, into HIP. There was some. You know, there was some information on woodcock harvest or, or morning dove harvest or cranes were re usually regulated under a special permit. Um, so we had some information, but we didn't have the, um, the depth of the information that we have now, which is why, you know, the management community said, yes, we need, we need a, a system, you know, and what we now call HIP for, and HIP's the front end. Um, you know, that's the state's responsibility. The Fish and Wildlife Service does the does the harvest surveys and it all feeds the management system at the flyway level. Okay. So data secured prior to 1999 and then 1999 or later, how do they, are they comparable? Do they, do they talk to each other or is that an interruption in the data stream? There, there is an interruption in the database uh, for waterfowl there. Like I said, there isn't much for um, the, the webless species um, prior to 99. Um, but there are, there have been some attempts to uh, mathematically um, of, you know, make the two estimates, um, you know, join up and be on, be on the, but they are to some extent apples and oranges. The sampling frames are completely different and without um, sounding like a real egghead and getting into uh, in, into a lot of math and everything else. I'll just say that uh, there, there have been efforts, there are some comparability, um, but you have to understand the, the assumptions that you're making and, and um, that they aren't exactly comparable. Okay, awesome. You know, you've, you've provided so much information for, for Delta's listeners, and I think everyone's going to be excited to participate. But now I want to make sure that, you know, Brad, I know that you're working, you know, uh, on a retirement job with the Wildlife Management Institute, and you have some objectives. One is this, right? Just say, hey, everybody, this is really important. Please help out. What are some of your other goals, you know, working with WMI right now? And, and maybe I'll, I'll narrow it down just a little bit farther for you, is that HIP, I'll call it performance. So you have all of these data. Is it, are there, are there other improvements you wanna make? You know, are these reliable estimates that you generate? Well, you're exactly right. One of my goals is to um, uh, is to educate hunters about uh, about HIP. Also, frankly, um, folks uh, from agencies, folks, um, licensed vendors, um, and actually some of the companies that have developed the the software for selling hunting licenses. Um, you know, there's continual turnover. In all of those communities, you um, you know, like I said before, you're very involved in hunter recruitment, and um, you know, you probably know better than I what the churn rate is, what the um, you know, and how many of the hunters that we have now go back to prior to 1999, and you know, so we're finding that there's a continual need to educate folks about HIP and about the harvest surveys and why it's important. So that's one of one of my tasks. My other task is working with states and, and identifying what the weaknesses are in, in their licensing procedures that 
are adding to imprecision in the estimates and in, in HIP. And in some cases, we found um, examples where uh, the license vendor and I, you know, at a sporting goods store, has a line of twenty people behind them, um, you know, trying to buy a hunting license, and they don't want to be bothered to ask the HIP questions. And the the license vendor will just hit um, zero, you know, or didn't hunt last year. And you you may have harvested, you know, a couple hundred ducks last year, and you get put in the pool that um, that says you didn't hunt last year, and if you get drawn, uh, without getting too statistical into this, if you get drawn into that sample of all the other hunters who didn't hunt or didn't uh, weren't successful, and all of a sudden you, as a hunter, report that you shot 200 birds um, this year, it blows up the statistical estimate for that stratum. Okay. Um, and making sure that hunters get asked the questions and get put into the right box or the right stratum, the right uh, bucket of um, is important. And one of the key, th what we found over the over the twenty years of having HIP, we found that one of the key weak points is the actual clerk or or third party who is selling that license and filling in that information for the hunter. You know, the clerk may or may not ask you. As a hunter, I hope you, if you encounter a situation where the clerk doesn't ask you. Um, the questions say, Hey, I want to answer those questions. It's important that I answer those things. I had it happen to me as the chief of migratory bird management. I went to buy my license in Maryland at the sporting goods store that I grew up as a kid um, buying all my hunting stuff. At. And the, um, the clerk um, didn't ask me the questions. I said, where are the questions? And they said, we don't do that. I said, what do you mean you don't do that? I need a hip certification to be legal to hunt in the state. And they said, yeah, we answered them for you. And, and they said, no, we don't do that. We don't take the time to do that. And I said, well, I'm going to take the time to go buy my license at a different place because um, I want that. Um, it's important to have those questions answered, um, you know, by me, not by um, the sales clerk. Um, so working with that. And then in, in a number of states, we have um, of confusion when you buy a, a small game license or you buy a license and, and their procedures are set up where um, sometimes um, you can't identify migratory bird hunters. And when I was migratory bird chief, I occasionally would get letters from people saying, I've never shot a, a duck in my life or you know, a migratory game bird in my life. I, I only hunt deer. Why are you asking me how many ducks I shot? And those, that was typically coming from someplace where uh, either the state um, didn't ask the questions quite right or um, the licensed vendor um, somehow um, misclassified uh, hunters. And we were, you know, sampling deer hunters or rabbit hunters and asking them how many migratory birds that they harvested. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I'm, one of the things I do is sit down with states and talk to them about how they can improve their licensing to, to clean up the, the data quality. So we're, we're sampling the right set of hunters adds to, you know, better satisfaction from the hunters. You don't have to you know, deal with a piece of mail or a request for collecting information for that, that is meaningless to you. Um, and also it improves the estimates of the number of um, birds that are, and the number of, of migratory bird hunters that we've got. And I'm sure, you know, 
I'm sure you and um, you know, as uh, someone in, involved in, you know, the future of hunting and and um, and knowing who our migratory bird hunters are, understand the importance of of getting the right uh, audience and talking to the right people, and and designing programs um, you know, that help um, keep them engaged and help them understand um, why it's important to participate. So. All the, I think all that information that we're getting from hunters um, can really feed the management system. And that's why it's, um, um, it's important that we get good quality data from them and, and that hunters understand why they're participating. And frankly, all the other people that are involved with it understand the value and, and why the, the data quality is important. You did a great job of, of, of describing uh, some of the ways that it can can go wrong. And, and the fact that you're, you know, looking to identify those one, I think one that's easy to, to, you know, data that you collect, that's very easily comparable to what a, what a state collects is some states, you have to buy a license a, or a state stamp to hunt migratory birds. So the, so the state can have their count of how many waterfowl hunters they have in their state. And now if you compare it to hip and you go back to that question where let's say the license clerk clicked, no, that for 20, you know, there's a line of 20 hunters and for the sake of time, they clicked, nope, this person is not a migratory bird hunter. They click it 20 times. Those people should have been counted as waterfowl hunters. So that's a real easy comparison of saying, okay, the hip estimate is not going to compare with the state estimate. And so, you know, it's pretty easy to see where those, some of those flaws can pop up. And I guess that's really important information to you. And you're looking to target that specific um, transaction and others to improve the overall data set. Yeah, there's, um, there's lots of examples of um, there, where clerks, uh, the third party, um, you know, I, I don't want to pick on any company or any, um, a, any particular, but um, uh, where they'll either answer or the, anyone who buys a license, they'll just click hip certification, you know, the, just to go down the list. And, and so they don't, make their job harder and asking all these questions. Do you want a deer license? Do you want a combination fishing license? You know, they'll just click, you know, hip doesn't cost anything in those states. They'll just go ahead and click it. And all of a sudden you, you, you're getting all these other people that have no interest in migratory birds, um, you know, who are hip certified and just mudding up the sampling frame. And, you know, we have some examples, I think that you want to talk about um, on some changes that we've just made cooperatively with a couple of states uh, this past year. And we found um, that a lot of the, um, a lot of the previous HIP certifications were coming from um, um, basically from uh, big game hunters. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, I, you want to talk about those examples now or, you know, I think, you know, are you talking about the two tier or no, I was talking about um, oh, sure. the ahead. examples in, in, in Louisiana and Arkansas this past year. And, yeah, and, go ahead. Yeah. and we changed um, the state, those two states changed their sampling frame or their, their hip certification requirements um, this year, where uh, hunters, when they get their license, have to get online afterwards and get the hip certification, answer the questions directly and not go through a clerk. And um, and in both of those states, um, over 100,000 um, hunters disappeared from HIP certification between 2019 and 2020. And when we dug down deeper, 
found out that most of those hunters were registering at the beginning of their deer seasons. And, um, and so um, if you can imagine um, those prior year hip estimates, the number of waterfowl hunter or migratory bird hunters that they had uh, didn't match up with the state uh, duck stamp sales. You know, they were off and all of a sudden, you know, once we've changed the procedures, those two numbers are lining up almost perfectly. Okay. So sometimes the the remedy is obvious, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, You know, but, um, you know, there was, there's been a lot of concern that um, by doing that, there was going to be, um, it was going to make it more complex, make it more difficult for hunters to get their HIP certification. And they wouldn't do that. Um, I don't have any, uh, don't have any, um, uh, evidence that, that it drove people off or they didn't get it. Uh, no, no increases in contacts from, um, law enforcement officers or anything like that. But, um, um, you know, uh, there was some, um, difficulties in getting people registered if they weren't, you know, comfortable getting on the web or, or, you know, using the, uh, agency app, but, um, got through most of those by, um, frankly, in some cases, talking to the grandchildren and, and having the grandchildren uh, talk grandpa through how to how to go and do this on their cell phone. Yeah, it's such a, the, I guess, the campaign that you're going on to just shine awareness on the importance of this survey, other surveys, you know, the, the technological challenges that some people face. I mean, the educational aspect of, of what you're doing is is huge. And so, you know, I applaud you. I thank you. I thank you for for, for leading this charge and, and honestly, all of your years of service with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, that's, that's impressive and we all owe you a, a thank you because talk with you and, and uh, I haven't talked with you that much, but it's pretty obvious um, that you're a passionate waterfowler. So you care about having access to that resource, in, you know, as a hunter, you care about, about the management of that resource. I mean, look, you came out of retirement to do something else. Uh, um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm still retired. I still spend a lot of days in my boat and in the marsh and, and, uh, following bird dogs around on the uplands too. So, um, uh, but this is something I am passionate about and something that, um, as a very avid waterfowl hunter or migratory bird hunter, um, I want to, um, to share with, with hunters. So they understand why it's important, um, and how we can improve management, uh, and um, I thank you um, not only for an opportunity to appear on the on uh, the Delta uh, podcast, but as I said, you know I go back to Delta 1980, um, and some of most my most prized memories and possessions are um, associated with Delta, um, all the way back to then to uh, to this day. And you know, uh, I mentioned I worked on uh, swans, you know. Uh, your CEO um, is a swan biologist also. Um, I, you know, go back many, many years with Frank Rohrer and uh, Chris Nikolai. So um, many, and John Devney and, and the whole gang. So I, I've got lots of friends in, in Delta, um, lots of experience. Um, and I've benefited from my association with Delta for my entire professional career. And there's actually a long history of um, involvement in migratory bird professionals across the Fish and Wildlife Service and across the state agencies with Delta. So the impact of what you guys uh, have done and due to the waterfowl management community is, uh, can't be measured. It's, it's immeasurable. So thank you. 
Yep. Thank, thank you, Brad. I'm going to flag that little, the prior minute there. I'm going to flag that for all others here at Delta to listen to and, and appreciate that. I really do. To, to wrap up, it's a long web link, but on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service website, fws.gov, you can mine your way into surveys and data, harvest surveys, and learn about the Harvest Information Program. And then on that page, so we talked about that first, but then on that page, there's a couple links to get into the diary survey. You can learn more about it if you're curious after this conversation. And then there's another link to talk about the wing survey or the parts collection survey. Brad, do you okay if, if, uh, if I direct questions your way that might result from this podcast? Not, not a problem. Um, one other web link that I'll make sure that you have is there is a page kind of buried in that, you know, as you said, mining your way through, where there's an interactive map of waterfowl harvest, um, either by ducks or geese, by county across this across the country, and and you can go and, and see harvest information that comes from the harvest survey, you know, that ultimately started with HIP, by county. So you can look at at Cameron Parish, Louisiana, and compare it to Stutzman County, North Dakota, or to you know Butte County, California, um, and compare waterfowl harvest ducks or geese. And also on that uh, page, you can look at um, the uh, regionally the, the peak of waterfowl harvest. So if you were planning a trip somewhere to go, go duck hunting, to go goose hunting, you can see um, when the peak of harvest uh, occurs in each of those regions in each of those states. And I, I'll guarantee your listeners will get onto that page and you'll spend two or three hours just comparing what is the number one harvest county in the country or, or the state? And you'll be, you'll be amazed when you start saying, okay, well, you know, how many birds are harvested in, in Arkansas versus, you know, Alabama versus, um, you know, Idaho. And you, you'll have fun going and doing that and looking at uh, the, some of the counties too. You looks were um, being harvested in some counties that you didn't even know existed. Yeah. Thanks for flagging that. I'm sure like, I think I myself, so send me that one. I think I want to spend some time on that one, but I appreciate it, Brad. Again, this podcast has a dedicated email address. So if you're listening to this or watching this and you have some questions, you can get that question to me or I will flip it to Brad. So we don't, you know, re reveal your personal email address. So that's podcast at deltawaterfowl.org. Pop that into your, in, into your, uh, into an email. Uh, send me your question or comment and, and, and I'll receive it or share it with Brad. Brad, thanks a lot. You did a great job. I did a, it took a, a fairly complex subject and, and broke it down into easily digestible parts. So thank you for that. Thanks for all the work you're doing there and, you know, appreciate, you know, your prior and current association with Delta. So thanks for your time, Brad. Been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care. We'll see you.